Welcome to the New Holland Podcast. Welcome, welcome one and all. My name is Nigel Honeyman. I am the Harvester Product Specialist for the United Kingdom and Ireland. What we're going to be doing on today's uh, edition of the podcast is I am going to be telling you a little bit of history. I'm going to be taking you back to the genesis of the twin rotor concept, the very first machine to come out with twin rotors. Also, I'm going to be speaking to David Redmond. David is the high horsepower tractor specialist for the United Kingdom and Ireland. And David is going to be talking to us regarding transmissions. David is going to be explaining the difference between semi-power shift, power shift, double clutch transmission, and also the continuously variable transmission, the CVT. When I was a little younger, I must profess to having a fondness for a TW25 tractor with its crash gearbox. One thing with that tractor was that uh, after the student had had a crack at it, there were more teeth to be found in an entire flock of chickens and left in the gearbox as the student had been grinding the gears. The only one thing on the upside of that is that you never needed to ask where he was. I'm joined once again by tractor high horsepower specialist Dave Redden. David, how are you? Oh, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me back, Nigel. And I hope the uh, the chair is now firmly back in your control, or the steering wheel, as I said before. <laughs> firmly back in my control for the moment. Um, but we're going to have a chat this afternoon uh, about uh, transmissions, your tractor transmissions. It seems to me that there are an awful number uh, of options available, um, because you know when I was a lad, eight gears and a splitter used to be enough for a tractor. Um, what is driving the need for ever more complex transmissions and ever more ratios? Um, the main kind of requirement or the main driver behind it is uh, more productivity. Um, realistically, that leads to us trying to keep the engine revs as low as possible, so uh, saving on fuel, but utilising the transmission to maintain that speed. So we're really using the transmission uh, to, to kind of do the job what the engine probably would have done, like you say, quite a, quite a few years ago. So before the engine would have just pulled and, and maybe we would have been stuck in one gear. Now the transmission is kind of used more for changing gears up and down to, to maintain that speed and maintain that efficiency linked to productivity. I mean, following on from that one, um, speaking to Mark Howell over the last few weeks, the optimum speed of an engine for uh, for efficiency, for emissions, uh, is relatively narrow. Is that one of the drivers particularly for, uh, uh, for these ever more complex transmissions? Yeah, so, I mean, if you look at our CVT, and I know, I know you like acronyms there, Nigel, so a continuously variable transmission, um, the that that transmission realistically when we're on the road at 50 kph we're trying to keep our engine revs right down as low as 1550 engine rpm so again yeah it's trying to save on on fuel uh, as we as we drive that tractor forward okay but you i mean you talk about the cvt transmission which is a relatively complex one as things go or relatively recent let's let's, let's call it that but 
does the simple dry clutch transmission and splitter still have a place in in modern agriculture? As um, as we increase our horsepower uh, and the need for more horsepower, we need obviously more efficiency in our tractors. And you know, higher horsepower tractors years ago may have had kind of dry clutch, but when I say high horsepower, I'm kind of talking 120, 130 horsepower is high horsepower. Now we see 200 horsepower as high horsepower. So um, the the need for a dry clutch in in a tractor in this high horsepower sector is is no no longer because you know we're trying to transmit a lot of power through there. But the other thing, um, if you look at the tractors sub 100 horsepower, maybe there's still a small selection of tractors in that sector where the the, the need for a dry clutch tran, uh, tractor is is still there. And you'll probably remember back, Nigel. You know, um, now we, we've become a lot weaker uh, in our, in ourselves because that dry clutch it uh, it used to keep the muscles on your leg really really strong. You know, all you were doing all day was pushing that clutch and changing gear, pushing that clutch and changing gear. And probably if you looked at the half of the farmers in the UK nation, they're um, their left leg was probably far bigger than their right leg in the way of muscle. So, um, yeah, the need the need has kind of moved on. So we don't tend to use our left our left leg anymore to change gear. And like I say, it's it's really to increase our efficiency. Um, this is the re- reason why we don't have a, a dry clutch transmission really anymore. OK, um, but do we really need four different transmission options when we start looking at these larger? I mean, I mean, I'm talking about the the the, the T the, the the bigger T7s here. Do we really need four different transmission options? Okay, so um, maybe if we as well if we look at applications in each. So, for example, if we kind of look at our semi-power shift transmission, th- this is our entry-level transmission. So this is really aimed at the operator who doesn't want any complexity. Um, it's strangely enough, we see these being used a lot more in kind of like the, the vegetable applications where you may think that a, a CVT transmission is is for vegetable applications. Um, the, the tractor uh, like our T6 that has the, you know, the electro command transmission in, so the, the kind of more basic entry level transmission, we, we kind of see that tractor as a mule, let's say, in the field to move product from the field. So we we still see a need for that transmission. Okay, if we move on to our full power shift transmission, so this is a very productive transmission. It's got its place where the operator again can shift through every gear without kind of stopping. So he can kind of change from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And that can be used in any variety of applications. So, you know, being spreading, spraying, um, you know, potatoes, you name it, it, it can be used for there as well. And then we kind of move up the scale, and um, and I, I I won't use the term CVT, Nigel. I use the term continuously variable transmission, and that's that's no problem at all. That is our infinitely variable transmission. So from 0.1 to 40 or 50 kph, um, whichever the the maximum speed is in its application, we can go from you know that speed without having to do kind of a range change. And we just kind of scroll a wheel, let's say, and and that's brilliant because that can be again used in like things like destoning or spraying and spreading. But really, where a small step change in the speed is required, so that 
0.1 or 0.2 of a kilometre an hour. Whereas you don't get that in a in a full power shift transmission. It might go from, you know, um, a speed at six to six point five, for example, or six point six. So you you kind of got that more control in the in the continuously variable transmission. And then if we look at the dynamic command, that's our that's our new transmission. That kind of encompasses the good parts of every transmission that we've got. So it's our best yet. It's you know eight speed uh, transmission with dual clutch technology uh, and, and dual clutch is, is two clutches uh, within that controlling odd gears and even gears and and it has a, a kind of an option which is called ground speed management so we can use that transmission even though it's more mechanical we can use that transmission a bit like a, a, a CVT a, a variable transmission um, functionality so that we can get retain that maximum efficiency from the transmission so yes there is a need for all of those transmissions because they all have a place in separate kind of applications within the market okay i mean i mean you mentioned the the, the latest double clutch transmission the dct um what about the driver behind it is it efficiency because obviously with 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 two clutches in the in the transmission engaging with close on 100 percent mechanical efficiency is that more fuel efficient than a than than, than a CVT transmission? Yeah, so our CVT has uh, has a dual clutch, so um, we, we won't hide that. I mean, um, New Holland came to the market with a dual clutch technology back in 2009 when we launched it on our kind of T7 uh, range of tractors, our higher horsepower T7 range of tractors. Um, but the, the dynamic command uh, is a very different transmission. Whereas the CVT has a, a hydraulic uh, kind of motor influence to, to change a lot of the speeds to make it that, that variable range, the, the dynamic command is, is a very different one. It uses that double clutch technology, but it uses two gears or two sets of gear shafts. So there's a set of gears which controls on one shaft, which is like the one, three, five, and seven gears, and then gears two four six and eight the even gears are on, are on a second shaft so it's kind of a, a gearbox with three shafts in the in the gearbox and that's what makes it so smooth the the, the two gears as you uh, as you drive let's say you're in gear three gear four is already engaged so it's got two gears engaged within the transmission at any one time and that makes it when it when it changes gear that makes it able to do that within milliseconds and to make it so smooth if you if you take a racing car uh, power is needed to the wheels without you know power interruption so um, if you look at a formula one car driving around a track the, the guy in the formula one car hasn't got time to to, to declutch change gear let it off a clutch because there's the seconds gone and that gives us like the the advantage um, it also gives us a bigger working window um, when it when it comes to the to the gear span. So for the task in hand, we've got these kind of eight gears where we can change through sequentially. Where we where you know where we've got a big working wide window, and it's it's like an auto command transmission. If you keep the gear selection to the highest speed, like to meet your target speed and the revs as low as possible, we can still kind of save on fuel. So yeah, efficiency with fuel efficiency is a big driver in the transmissions. With the DCT and the auto command, have these two transmissions made the full power shift power command redundant? 
No. So with the dynamic command uh, transmission, you'll find that in our lower horsepower tractors currently at the moment. So when I say that, uh, that's our T5 dynamic command and our T6 dynamic command models up to uh, 180 horsepower. Our full power shift transmission is still very much available and it's in our T7 range of tractors and you've probably seen the T8 Genesis as well. So we've got uh, it in the T8 Genesis also. And we've just launched a, a new T8 Genesis at 400 rated horsepower. So that full power shift transmission is is available in that in that tractor as well. So, yeah, I mean, when you look at the full power shift, it's been on the market for quite a long time, but it still has its place in in the higher horsepower sector. And finally, I mean, we we, we talked about applications and, and the different transmissions suit different applications. But one application that is a um, that keeps on coming about is we, we mentioned vegetable um, vegetable growing earlier on. But do we still need to sell uh, tractors with creeper creeper gears uh, with, with with the creeper option. I, I'm assuming that CVT can can manage these super low low forward speeds. Do these other transmissions do they require creeper as an option? Yeah. Okay. So if we take our T six one eighty as an example and. Uh, we look at it on 18.438 tyres. The, the slowest speed on the, uh, and you said DCT, and I have to shoot you for that, Nigel, but our dynamic command transmission, if we look at the slowest speed, it's around 2.3 kph, or in your money, 1.4 miles an hour. For those customers, Nigel, who want an even slower speed, so for example, we mentioned uh, kind of the vegetable customer, so de-stoning, or may even be hedge cutting. Um, yes, we can add a add a creeper gearbox to that. So, on those same tyres, we can get right down to 0.2 kilometres an hour or 0.1 of a mile an hour again in your money. If you then look at the auto command transmission, that is stepless. Um, that's stepless from zero. 0.1 kilometer an hour right through to 40 or 50 kph so there is no need for a creeper box a creeper box in effect is built into a into a cvt so you've got a lot more kind of let's say flexibility uh, to to drive that tractor in different applications um david we, we talk about the auto command transmission but am i right in thinking that there is in fact more than one auto command yeah, so if we look at our transmissions that we offer today in the market, we can offer a continuously variable transmission, CVT, um, from 100 horsepower right the way through to the, the T8 at 435 horsepower. So we've got a wide spectrum there of, of horsepower. Now, if we sort of split that down, our T5 range of tractors, our T6 range of tractors, and our T7 kind of up to the 225, T7-225, have a smaller version of the of the uh, transmission. So it's kind of got, um, you can't really see it, but it's, it's kind of got a two range transmission. If you look at our longer wheelbase uh, T7 tractors uh, through to our HD, then we have as I said earlier, the, the transmission that we, we kind of first came to market with, with the dual clutch, which is a four range. So we get a lot more kind of speed overlap and a lot more kind of speed matching happening within that transmission. Then the third one is the one in the T8, which is again, slightly different again, whereas the two transmissions that we, we have in the in the T5, the T6 and, and the T7, they're a lot more mechanical with synchronizer engagement. The, the T8 uh, transmission 
is a similar sort of CVT logic with with four ranges as the T7, but it's now like clutch pack engaged. So the three transmissions have their place uh, within the in the sector. And yes, you're right. There is three very different makeups. Uh, the 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 two range is a lot smaller and compact. So obviously with the T5 to keep in that compact size, whereas the other two two transmissions are, are a lot bigger. Obviously, if we're a longer wheelbase tractor. And the logic for operating all, all, all auto command transmissions is exactly identical, regardless of whether you're in 435 horsepower or 100. Yeah, exactly that. So when you sit within the cab, um, the logic on the on the command grip, you have three ranges that you can set as an operator, or three windows, let's say, where you can set target speeds. David, many thanks indeed for your time once once again today, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again sometime soon. No worries, Nigel. Thank you very much. It will probably be in Norwegian. <laughs> Thank you, Nigel. I look forward to it. One of the fun things with a company with as rich a history as New Holland is that we are always celebrating some sort of anniversary. Um, we have 125 years since the foundation of New Holland, um, but... One other thing that you'll notice is on the side of CR Combines nowadays, you'll see a little uh, sticker that says 45 years of twin rotor technology. Now, for those of you that can do some basic maths, if the CR came out in 2002, which is barely 19 years ago, what we have here is another, com another combine, another combine that's involved as the progenitor of the twin rotor technology. And this is the story of how that came about, and it really is the story of three separate companies. They are the Sperry Corporation, they are New Holland, and they are Clace of Zettelgen. So, first things first, let's have a little bit of a history lesson. New Holland itself uh, was founded by Abe Zimmerman back in 1895 in New Holland, Pennsylvania. Um, they became famous uh, in, in the first instance for making a mill, uh, and then after that, they produced uh, items such as the freeze-proof engine with a tapered water jacket around the uh, around the cylinder itself, so that in the cold of the North American winters, the, the 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 water jacket wouldn't freeze and crack the engine apart. The Sperry Corporation has a very interesting history. Founded at the beginning of the 20th century, they produced in the first instance gyroscopically stabilised navigation equipment and predominantly this was going into a naval environment although at the beginning of the 20th century with the dawn of aviation very soon it found its way into aircraft. They produced devices such as the artificial horizon and here is a name from history um, Colonel Jimmy Doolittle. Uh, for those of you that have seen the film uh, he was the guy that led the Doolittle raid on Japan during the uh, during the Second World War. In the interwar years, then-Lieutenant Jimmy Doolittle was the first pilot to fly a plane with a completely blacked-out cockpit, relying entirely on instrumentation provided by the Sperry Corporation. During the Second World War, Sperry continued to supply the US government with its navigation equipment, but it also provided analogue fire controllers for gun systems, bomb sites, and even the ball gun turret that fitted below the uh, B-17 Flying Fortress. 
Following the end of hostilities, Sperry found itself trying to step back from its war footing. And with a surplus of capital, what they did was they went out on a spending spree, trying to diversify the operation. And it was in 1947 that they acquired the New Holland Machine Company of Pennsylvania. Now, while you might think that this was an unlikely fit, during the war, Sperry actually did an awful lot of work on degaussing uh, naval ships, degaussing, demagnetizing, so that they weren't susceptible to magnetic mines. This expertise was later put to use with the introduction of the metal detector uh, on the forage harvesters, so that there was a degree of cross-pollination between the different branches of, uh, of the Sperry Corporation. And in 1964, the final piece of the jigsaw was put into place when Sperry New Holland acquired a majority share in what we know as Clace, the Zettelgum Combine factory that was founded by Leon Kleiss in 1906. But for those of you that have done the maths, if we go back 45 years, we're looking at a period in the mid-70s. When we look at what was going on in America uh, with combines in the mid-70s, the one thing that we'll notice is that the big combine manufacturers were starting to look towards rotary separation. Why? Quite simply, they were looking at creating more separation power. The straw walkers themselves had become the bottleneck. Combine manufacturers were looking to get more output out of similar size machines, and rotary separation was seen to be the answer. If you look at the combines that were being produced in Europe at the time by Sperry New Holland, um, at the dawn of the 70s was the launch of the 1500 series. Now, the 1500 series was the one that heralded back in 1973 the rotary separator. Now, the rotary separator was a device that was specifically designed to improve the separation power of the combines. When we look at the New Holland combines that were over in the States at the time, uh, we had the 900 series. Now, the 900 series was a, a combine that was manufactured in Belgium uh, and then was assembled uh, over at the Grand Island plant in Nebraska. Now, a, little, a few differences between the two uh, from side to side. One obvious difference was the colour whereas all the European uh, Sperry New Holland combines were, were the yellow that, uh, that we know today, the American combines retained the New Holland red. Now, anyone who goes to Zettelham at the moment and looks down the baler line will see some of these bright red balers that are, that, are, that are there on the line with the yellow pickup. These are specifically the machines that are destined for America. The other big difference was that the American 900 series used a locally sourced petrol that we would say, or gasoline engine, um, rather than the Ford diesel engines that were commonly used in the European models. So it is into this environment that the TR-70 was launched in 1975. Now, it must be said that International Harvester uh, was on the cusp of launching its single rotor design, so the question really comes about why the twin rotor? Well, the smaller diameter rotors uh, that, that are found in the twin rotor design actually generate more centrifugal force. And bearing in mind that the problem that we're trying to address here is separation, greater centrifugal force means greater separation power. So the TR-70 was launched with two 17-inch rotors, approximately 430 millimeters across, but the length was relatively short. The length was barely 2.2 meters long. These had a, a speed range from 500 to 1325 RPM and straw was discharged at the back through a transverse beater 
running at 790 RPM. Each rotor was equipped with two raspars, approximately 700 millimeters long, that ran along the length of the rotor. These were timed. It was quite important for the feeding of the combine. So the raspars on the left-hand rotor would be sitting at 12 o'clock and 6 o'clock, and on the right-hand rotor they'd be sitting at 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock. Stone protection for the combine was afforded by a roller mounted halfway up the uh, front elevator. This had four positions and underneath it was a spring-loaded trap door. If ever there was a stone overload that opened the door, the operator would get an audio-visual uh, signal in the cab and then he had to get out and manually shut the door back up again. With all of the innovations working in the threshing and separation system, the cleaning shoe underneath was pretty conventional. Uh, a two-sieve system with the returns going all the way back to the front of the rotors. Clean grain was passed to a 6,350-litre grain tank by means of a bubble-up auger. The standard grain tank could have its capacity increased by the use of grain tank extensions. While for the American market a Ford gasoline engine was available, most of the TR70s came out with a Caterpillar 10.5 litre V8 engine producing 168 horsepower. Worth comparing this to the smallest combine that we currently sell in Europe, which is the TC 4.90, which is equipped with a 175 horsepower engine. In 1977, New Holland submitted the TR70 to the Prairie Agricultural Machinery Institute, or PAMI. This is an independent body that tests agricultural machinery, very, very similar to what uh, happens in Europe with the DLG. Their conclusions were that the performance of the TR70 was outstanding. Losses were very, very low. They used a conventional combine as a reference point, so they could compare in the exact same fields, conditions and crops uh, how the TR was performing. What they did say was that engine power was the limiting factor in, in most cases, uh, and in dry crops the performance was superb. They did note, ominously, that um, unblocking the machine was pretty inconvenient and that uh, they were using a pickup header at the time and poorly presented swaths going into the front of the combine could cause off-center loads going up one rotor and if more material was going up one rotor than the other then that could lead to a plugging situation. Roll forward a couple of years to 1979 and New Holland in the United Kingdom brought over two machines. They brought over a TR-70 and a TR-85. The TR-85 was just an updated version, slightly more power, using the same CAT V8 engine. Supporting these field test activities was a gentleman by the name of Trevor Wyatt. Trevor, uh, for those people in the United Kingdom may well know him, who is still working as an area manager for New Holland on the harvester side of things. Trevor reported that the biggest problem that the TR had in UK conditions was the damp. It really didn't like the damp. And the problem was caused by the design of the raspar on the rotor. The raspar, as has already been mentioned, was straight down the length of the rotor. Now what that meant was that the transport of crop from the front of the rotor to the back was performed by veins in the what we'd now call the rotor covers. And quite simply, in the heavier straw, damper conditions that we have in the United Kingdom and Northern Europe, it used to block. 
Various remedies were tried, including covering the concave wires with tubes to create a roller effect. Um, also, the concaves were removed, cut and re-welded so that they were wider at the front. And while both of these improved the feeding, it never fully fixed the problem. Trevor also noted that there was a return of the uneven feeding that the PAMI team had found in North America with the pickup header. Nowadays, what we will have with a, uh, with a header is a full-width set of retractable fingers. And what this does is it creates a much smoother, much more even feed. What was happening with the TR in those days was, even though it was only a 15-foot header, the feed into the elevator was uneven. And as this uneven feed got to the top of the elevator into the rotors, then there was almighty banging and noise being created. In the mid-1970s, cab isolation technology was nowhere near advanced as it is at the moment, and so the operator felt every lump and bump that was going up into the rotors. One other problem that was noted on the UK testing that was never seen in North America was the gearbox for the unloading drive. The heavy damper crops that were experienced in the United Kingdom in 1979 caused almighty problems for the gearbox within it. Without a spare gearbox available, Trevor was often sent off on missions up to uh, Platts Harris, who was the foremost combine dealer at the time, in order to find cogs that might actually fit inside the gearbox to make it work again. So, the conclusion to the 1979 testing was that the TR concept was not particularly suited in its current form to Northern Europe, to the damper, heavier conditions that, uh, that we experience here. However, it wasn't the end of the story for the TR in Europe. In 1980, a series of 225 TR85 models uh, were built at the Zettelheim uh, factory. Uh, these predominantly went to the drier conditions in southern Europe. New Holland customers in Europe weren't to be denied their shot at rotary technology, as in the mid-80s the twin-flow TF combine was introduced. Development on the TR continued all the way through until 2002, when the CR combine emerged, the CR that we know today. So, to conclude the story of the TR, what became of Sperry? Well, Sperry was the subject of a hostile takeover by the Burroughs Group in 1986. This was merged to create uh, a company called Unisys, an IT services and systems company that exists to this day. At that time, the non-core companies within the group were then sold off. Some of the instrumentation companies now exist within companies such as Lockheed Martin and British Aerospace. And of course, in 1986, New Holland itself was sold to the Ford organisation to create Ford New Holland. But the true legacy of that TR-70 combine exists to this day within the CR. The lessons learnt through over 45 years of dealing with twin rotor technology can now be seen on all machines from the CR10.90 all the way to our brand new CH combine, the crossover harvester. It seems like a long time ago now, but back in episode one, I started talking about institutional memory and the fact that people change roles within organisations and things can get lost. Well, 
the time has come. My role within New Holland is changing. I am now looking after a few more products for a few more markets. And it has come time for me to pass the microphone over to someone new. I hope you've enjoyed the last six episodes of the New Holland podcast, and I hope you will continue to do so. However, in the meantime, please stay safe.